been working through the book of 1 Corinthians chapter by chapter, which is something that I don't often do. Um, I try to take big, smaller chunks of scripture, but I'm in kind of a time crunch and wanted to give a, a perspective, if you will, of the book of 1 Corinthians as a whole. And doing so, I wanted to go through it just chapter by chapter to reach certain deadlines that I wanted to, to reach and, and needed to get to. We're in chapter number four. As you guys remember, we've been, uh, chapters one through four deals, and, and let me just say this, Corinthians is a book written about crisis in the church. I, I think we've titled the series that we're in as uh, a church in crisis. So Cor- Corinth is a church that's in crisis. Every chapter deals with a very, very specific crisis that the church is dealing with. Ultimately, there's only one, there's only one doctrine in the book of Corinthians that's broken. So while you have several chapters that deal with, 16 chapters that deal with different problems in the church, and they would really all be practical, almost like you could, you could just like put your hand on it and say, yeah, I get that, I see that, I understand that. Um, there's only one doctrine in the whole entire book that, that is broken, and that is the doctrine of the resurrection. And it is my belief that the doctrine of the resurrection, when we don't when we don't accept and acknowledge the significance of the fact that you're going to raise from the dead one day, that when you die, you're going to go into the grave, but you are going to not stay there. And you're going to rise from the dead, and you're not going to rise from the dead just spiritually, but when Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, his body rose from the dead. You're going to rise from the dead physically. And it is important um, what we do with our bodies before that resurrection happens. And we live in a generation of people that have, done, that have, have um, placed no emphasis on their physical, they live how they want, they do what they want, they put into their bodies what they want because they have no concept of the fact that that body is going to raise from the dead. And that is why the Apostle Paul says in chapter 6 of this book, he says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? And you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your, in your body and in your spirit, which are his. And so really what you're seeing, what I believe to be the case in Corinth, is that you have, you have, you have a lot of different problems that are built around the fact that people don't take the resurrection seriously. They've distinguished. And it's like, I can live however I want in my flesh, but as long as I do certain spiritual things so that when the resurrection happens or when I get into eternity, everything is going to be okay. For Christians, it's just not the way it should be. And that's how, that's how the Apostle Paul addresses it. He doesn't address it in a condemning way. He addresses it in a fatherly way. He addresses it in such a way as this is not how it should be. This is not how you should be living. This is not how you should be walking. And so he's correcting, throughout the book, he's correcting this, this inaccurate view of the resurrection and in, and in doing so, he's correcting all of these different issues in the church, all of these different problems. The first four chapters, as we dealt with uh, the first three already, deals with division in the church. There's, a, there's an underlying division. Um, there's an underlying conflict or uh, splintering or division in the church that the Apostle Paul deals with. 
And uh, it's ultimately the result of the church's placing emphasis on external uh, talents or abilities amongst their ministers, and they're, and they're choosing their, their acceptance or their rejection of certain ministers based upon these, these aspects. Um, I say all of that to say this. This message is a difficult message to preach. It's not an easy message to preach because many of you have been in churches where there has been an unhealthy leadership. Um, there's been unhealthy elders, there's been un- unhealthy leaders, there's been inappropriate leadership, there's been abusive leadership. And, and so when you come to a text of Scripture that deals with how the church should treat their leaders or how they should view their leaders, it's important that I think you, you, you get an understanding that the Apostle Paul expects something from the leaders as well. It's not just instruction on how how the church should view their leaders, but it's also instruction on how leaders should function and how leaders should act. But, but know this, that a church will never be united. A church will never be unified unless there's a proper relationship between their people and the leadership. It just won't happen. It's impossible for it to happen. It, it, even if the leadership is bad or the people are bad or whatever is bad, whatever is broken, you can't, have, you can't have unity in a church where the leadership and the congregation aren't getting along. And so the Apostle Paul is, that's what he's dealing with here. It's like, this has to be dealt with. And the fourth chapter, he, he breaks out into kind of a closing, and he just says, here are some things, here are some ways that you should view leadership in the church. Here is a perspective that you should have of them. So the final of Paul's instruction about division relates specifically to how the congregation relates to the leaders, or another way of saying that is how the congregation evaluates the leaders in the church. He starts off the chapter with, this is how you should regard us. And Apostle Paul says, this is how you should, what he's saying is, is remember in the chapters before, some people like Paul, and some people like Peter, and some people like the Paulists, and some people like Christ. And there, was, there was something about them physically that drove the congregation to like one over the other. Maybe one of them was an eloquent speaker. I think Apollos was known for his eloquence, and lots of people liked eloquent speakers. And, and Paul was known for his boldness, and, and he just kind of said it like it, like it was. And Peter was known for putting his foot in his mouth. And, and, and you have these different personalities taking place here. And the congregation is looking at the church and, and looking at these leaders and, and making um, choices on who, which one they like, not based upon spiritual characteristics, but based more on physical characteristics. And if we go back to the last chapter, we find that when we, judge on, when we judge on physical things, then we try to wrap that up into the gospel. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense anymore, does it? Because the gospel is about the spiritual things, not about the physical things. Matter of fact, if, we, if a person hopes to get to heaven based upon something physically that they do or a talent that they have, then they're going to, they're going to find that they're going to fall short. So this is how the Apostle Paul starts with, this is how one should regard us. In other words, this is how people should view the leadership in the church, how they should perceive them. Now, this perception, and the word here is logizomai. It means, in the Greek, it's logizomai. It means to inventory. It means to look at something and to, and to kind of inventory that person. And you, you guys all do it. None of, you, none of us are innocent of it, right? Uh, it's very rare that we don't, we don't measure people, right? You walk into a room, and the first thing that you do is you start measuring people. 
You start measuring them according to certain standards, according to certain expectations. If you use the wrong standards and expectations, you get a, perhaps a bad view of that person. If you use the right standards and expectations, you can get a, a, a good view. It's like how you view somebody often um, is directly related to what measuring stick you're using to view them. Okay? And so that's what the Apostle Paul is doing is doing here. Now, now notice this. The Apostle Paul starts with, this is how you should view us. So it's not abnormal. Or this is how you should measure us. So it's not abnormal or unhealthy to measure the leaders in your church. It's not unhealthy to measure or to evaluate the leadership in the church. The reality of it is when the Apostle Paul says, follow me or mimic me, Several times in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul uses these terms. He's expecting to be evaluated. Apostle Paul wants to be evaluated. He wants people to look at his life. He wants people to look at his character. He wants people to look at his walk. He wants people to look at his faith. And he wants people to not just measure him based on those things, but he wants people to follow it, to to emulate it, to, to mimic it. So the evaluation, the measuring of your leadership in your church is not the problem. It's the means, it's the measuring stick that you're using for your leadership in the church that is the problem. That's what what can cause division and can cause strife. It is obvious from the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians that division had resulted from evaluating church leadership based upon physical attributes, such as talent, communication skills, depth or style of preaching, likability, personal preference, familiarity, and maybe a hundred other physical attributes that could be directly associated with the division that was taking place in Corinth. It's been said before that a church will never rise above its leaders, and I think that there is, a, there is some truth to that statement, a church will never rise above its leaders. And while this statement is true, I think it is also true to say that a church will never rise above its congregation's evaluation of its leaders. A church will never rise above, its, above the congregation's opinion of its leaders. Because a church can have a perfect leader, well, Jesus, a church can have a good leader and evaluate him incorrectly and it can cause division, right? A church can have a really bad leader and evaluate him in a positive way, even though he's a really bad leader, and it can still, still can have unity. So our perception of the leadership in many ways is, is a uh, means by which we are either divided or unified. So it is important how we evaluate the, the leaders in the church. If there is to be unity in the church, the leaders will need to be trusted and evaluated based upon trust. This trust is not a result of sinless perfection, but rather it is a result of people being satisfied, forgiving, and gracious because Christ is satisfying, forgiving, and gracious. Always remember that the basis by which we treat other people is that Jesus Christ treated us that way. Okay? The basis for treating other people in, in a way, one way or another is that that's the way Jesus has treated us. You're familiar with Ephesians 4.32. It says, be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ Jesus hath forgiven you. So the basis for how we treat each other is, is Christ. 
And Christ is all-forgiving, Christ is all-satisfying, and Christ is all-gracious. And so that's how we function with each other. That's what unity will, that's what unity will, that's where unity will, when unity will come. True unity comes when God's people view others, don't you just think about this with me, true unity in the church comes when God's people view others the way that they hope God views them. Let me say that again. True unity comes when God's people view others the way that they hope God views them. Matthew 7, verse 1 and 2 says, Judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment, note this, for with what judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with what measurement you use, it will be the measurement used against you. Very important little passage of Scripture, two little verses that tell us what we measure with is going to be measured back to us. That's the measuring stick that's going to be brought and held up against us. So we be careful how we judge others because we may one day be judged by that same standard. And I think that's a practical truth as well. I, I don't know about you guys, but I know for me in my own life, I, I've been... a. Um, in a pastor's home my whole life, and I've been a pastor for 20-plus years, and I've seen, I've seen my attitude towards preachers come back on me. I've seen my attitude towards things end up coming back to me. My attitude towards my dad when I was younger coming back to me, and I'm like, okay, I get it now, Dad. You know, it, it, it is, it, 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 th- those things often come back to us. We're measured by the same measuring stick by which we measure. Scripture says a lot about this idea of, of how we are to treat our leaders. And I'm not going to go to these passages because of time, but just consider them in your own time. Hebrews 13, uh, the entire chapter deals with this. It tells us to consider, to think about our leaders. It tells us to imitate them, to obey them, and to pray for them. 1 Thessalonians 5 tells us to respect our leaders, to esteem them very highly, and to love, have a love for our leaders. So the fourth chapter, these are companion chapters, if you will, to this idea of how we are to view the leaders in the church. The fourth chapter of 1 Corinthians provides instruction on how, this, how the congregation should evaluate their leaders if they want unity. Remember this, church unity cannot be forced. Church unity cannot be forced. It's impossible to force unity. It has to happen. It has to happen because it's in the heart of the individuals to make it happen. It cannot be forced. Once one person begins to force unity, what he's, what he's leading, what he is forcing is something that's not in the heart of the individual. It will ultimately lead to greater division. As a matter of fact, in many churches, you have a false unity that is based upon some personality forcing it on the congregation, but they're not truly being a gracious group of people gathering together in forgiveness in contentment in graciousness towards each other, and therefore there's this, there's this uh, natural outflowing of unity. That's what true unity is. True unity is not something that you force someone to do. It's something that you experience because people have the right heart. And it needs to, it needs to be, it needs to be um, for the churches, for churches to move forward, it needs to be something that we all work at. 
So true unity is not something that can be forced. It's something that is desired, and it's something that's worked on by everyone. Everybody has to work on it. Ministers have to work on being appropriate ministers, and congregations have to work on being appropriate congregations, and neither one of them are off the hook. It's the same way with marriages. Marriages need to be unified, right? Marriages, sometimes there's two parties involved, and sometimes they're not, one side is not the best that they ought to be, right? And you have to work on being unified. You have to work on being, and it's based upon the fact that you have to be forgiven, forgiving, you have to be gracious, you have to be kind, you have to be able to overlook faults. All these things that Jesus does for us, that's the principle of how a good marriage will, will happen. It's also the principle of how a good church will happen. And unity in the church will happen. It's not some, again, it's not, it's not, I've often said this, and I think one of the, one of the, one of my frustrations as a pastor, if you will, is the idea of everything, everything being like a lesson that we learn and not a truth that we catch that gets a hold of us and transforms us. And we're like constant, the Bible talks about people constantly studying, but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. In other words, just constantly learning, 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 but never having it grab a hold of your heart. We need to be as a church of people that have let, have let this idea of, of graciousness and kindness towards each other grip our hearts. It's not something that you read in a book one day. It's something that is truly the way to live. And it's the, it's the best way to live. It's the only way to live if we're going to truly glorify God. So that brings us to our text, and we're going to walk through it together and break it down into three, just three little um, three points, three thoughts, and try to unfold them for us. The question that's answered here in this text is, what should your perception be of your leadership in your church? What should your view of them be? What should your measuring stick be? And, um, and that's what the Apostle Paul deals with to get restored unity or to pursue restored unity. The text I will break down in three thoughts. These are three imperatives. In the um, uh, Greek, uh, an imperative is simply a, um, it's a, it's a instruction, it's a command. It's not an optional thing, it's something that's being commanded for people to do. And so in this case, there are three imperatives in this chapter, which is, is how most of the Greek text is divided by, look at where the imperatives are and see what the instruction is. And so we're going to do that, and that's how we're going to break it down. Verse number Chapter 4 and verse number 1, and we'll read down to verse number 4. The Bible says, And this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that a man or that a steward be found faithful. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything, that, anything against myself. And, and, and you could stop and say, well, Paul was arrogant and he was full of himself. But that's not the, that's not the context here. These are, these are humble statements. Paul's making a humble statement about himself. And he's going to explain it down the road as well. He says, but I am not therefore, thereby acquitted. I am not justified. I am not innocent because I don't see any wrong in myself. But I am not, he says, it is the Lord who judges me. And, and we'll stop there in verse number four because that's the first imperative. The first imperative is that we should view the leaders in our church as those who belong to God. 
And it's what he's saying here in the first four verses. He's saying that the leaders in the church belong to God. He identifies them as being God's leaders, as being people that God has placed into a position or a role, people who are uh, several things that he uses here to help us understand what leaders are. But ultimately, the, the main issue of these first four verses is that leaders are under, are under God's authority. God has placed them there. God has put them there. God has commissioned them there. God has gifted them to do the task that's before them, and that we need to be considerate of that as we consider, as we measure them. The Apostle Paul starts by using two very uh, extreme terms describing the role of the leader in the church. These two extreme terms are servant of God, or servant of Christ, and steward of God's mystery. The servant of Christ is a term that's describing a, uh, a slave, a servant, somebody, it's, it's the lowest of the low. Um, it would describe a, if you were on a ship back in the days when this was written, if you were on a ship, there were certain levels of servants and they would be rowing that ship. You, maybe you've seen movies where there's people that are in, down in the lower parts of the ship and they're, and they're rowing the ship, right? And they're making progress with the ship. Well, there were three levels of rowers that would be uh, in, a, in a ship, and you could kind of progress your way up, and, and obviously the lowest low, the third level rowers, would be the most insignificant of rowers. This is where the, the lowest servant would go, the most insignificant servant would go, the, the one that nobody really cared, uh, nobody paid a lot of attention to, they were, they were kind of that down there by themselves, that's what this term describes. The, he, he is a, an under rower. He's under and under and under, the lowest of the low. And so the first thing that he tells us about this, about this um, servant of Christ is that he is the lowest, a, a leader in the church, a, a, an elder or a pastor is the lowest of servants. And what he's saying to them is he's, he's saying to these people, don't elevate us. Don't put us up on a pedestal. Don't, don't lift us up and exalt us. And, and he's specifically referring to their person in this context. And this verse is about the person of, a, of an elder or a leader in the church. He's like, don't elevate an, the person of the leader in the church. His person doesn't need to be elevated. The, the last thing that you want to do is elevate the person or the personality or the skills and the talents of the person in the, that's leading the church because it's not about him, it's about Christ. And when you elevate the personality or the person, then you are minimizing Christ. So the first term that he uses is this, this Paul says about himself, I'm the third level rower. Nobody cares about me. Nobody cares about my, my, my you know, like John the Baptist coming out of the wilderness, you know, clothed in certain clothes and eating certain things. It's like he was insignificant in his person. And it is important that we don't lift up leaders because when you lift up leaders and exalt leaders, when they fall, it's a long fall and lots of people fall with them. These last few days I've been listening to a podcast about a church that had a leader, a great leader, uh, um, you know, for all intents and purposes, a personality that just knew how to lead and grew his church from nothing to, to the largest church in the United States of America in just a few years. But the amazing thing is, is that man fell, and when he fell, his church fell apart in one day. 
because they weren't following Christ. They were following the personality of the individual who was in front of them. The Apostle Paul says, when you measure your leaders, listen, they're third-level rowers. They're not important. Quit putting them up on a pedestal like they matter. They are third-level rowers when it comes to their, their position and their person. The lowest of servants. In their person, they were the lowest. Remember, the higher you elevate the leaders of your church, the farther, the farther they have to fall. Church leaders are not to be elevated, but Christ is. And attention should not be on the servant as a person, but rather its focus should be on the master. And this is what we hear about John the Baptist describes that for us. And, and we also see it in 1 Corinthians 1 where the Lord chooses the weak and he chooses the insignificant and he chooses the nobodies in the world and he uses them to make his name great. You see, the problem with the Lord, the Lord choosing the significant people in the world is they'll want to make their name great. So what does he do? He chooses the insignificant. And the Apostle Paul doesn't want to be made significant. He doesn't want to be made significant in his person. He doesn't want to be elevated. That's not his goal here. His goal is, is that they not look at him with much of an elevated view, with any of an elevated view. The Apostle Paul of all people calls himself the chief of sinners, the, 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 the least of all the apostles. He's always minimizing himself. Why does he minimize himself? Because Christ must be exalted, not Paul or John the Baptist or anybody else. So note that. First of all, he is a servant of Christ. He is not a servant of you. He's not a third-level rower on your ship. He's a third-level rower on Jesus' ship. And he wants to get Jesus' ship forward. But the third-level rower doesn't get much attention. Matter of fact, if somebody has a problem with the third-level rower, they don't go to the third-level rower. They go to his master. And that's what he tells us here, too, that you let the Lord judge his servant. He's really good at it. That's what he says, first of all, while the congregation must resist the temptation to elevate the person or the personality of the one who is leading the church. Because listen to me, folks. Churches like to have prominent leaders, don't they? That's why you have the argument between Paul, Apollos, and Cephas, and Jesus, because who was the most significant of them all? We want him to be leading us. The church has to be careful never to elevate the leader in the church based upon his person, because Christ's person is the only one that should be elevated. At the same time, it is also said that they are stewards of the mysteries of God. So now we move from elevating the person in which we want to resist wholly to elevating the office or the responsibility of the one who is being leading the church. He says, yes, you should never view him as a person in a significant way, but you should never minimize the fact that he is a steward of God's mysteries. This isn't meant to elevate him, but it's meant to elevate the fact that he is handling God's word which makes his responsibilities and his roles very significant. He is a manager or a distributor of the household of God. A church leader should be viewed nothing less, 
He should be viewed nothing more in his person than a third-level rower. He should be viewed nothing less in his responsibility than the fact that he is handling the mysteries of the creator of the universe. You see how that balance has to be there? And he's not the... He's not the administrator of the mysteries of us. He's the administrator of the mysteries of God. He has been trusted with the mysteries of God. He's been given a gift and a calling in which he is able to and called to to teach the mysteries of God. This is a part of the gifting of being a leader in the church is is an understanding of things that God gives them through his spirit so that they can communicate them to others. This mystery in the scriptures is referring to the word of God, the gospel. God gives the leaders of the church a special insight into the word so that they can then communicate that to the body. This is what makes the leaders in your church significant. Not their person, not their dress, not their stature, not their financial status, but what matters about them is is the fact that they are handlers of God's word. So you can't view them too low when it comes to looking at their person. You can't view them too high when it comes to looking at their responsibility. There's a balance, and that balance must, must be met. They are, they are, number one, belong to God, servants of Christ, stewards of God's mysteries. Remember this, they are responsible to God. He says that here. These are ones that I will judge. They're accountable to God. They're his servants. They're his stewards. It's his stuff that they're managing, not ours. They are responsible to God. Romans 14 and verse 4 says it this way, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is, it is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Who are we to judge another man's servant? Who are we to evaluate, to measure another man's servant? It is the Lord's duty to do this. Even the Apostle Paul says it this way, I'm not even concerned with what you think about me. I'm not concerned with what I think about myself. Because the Apostle Paul knew his own frailties and his own weakness to properly even evaluate his own life. So what does he say is, he says, I'm always mindful of the fact that God is my ultimate judge. And there's no judge There's no judge like God. There's no judge like God. Responsible to God. They are his his possession. They are responsible to him. And then note this in this first few verses. they They were responsible for their faithfulness. The only requirements mentioned in this whole context of which you can measure, in other words, your measuring stick for a leader in the church is that he is what? He says, it is required of a steward that a person be found, tell me, faithful. The only requirement, not talented, that's the problem. Not gifted speaker, that's the problem. Not a great personality, that's the problem. The requirement for a leader in the church is that they be found faithful. They're faithful to the word, faithful to their wives, faithful to their church. That they be a faithful person. And we have all of these standards that we have and what we expect from a minister or what we listen, the, the Bible standard is and God's standard is, is they be found faithful. 
And I don't want to end up one day standing before God having judged somebody on a measuring stick that God doesn't even judge them on. The measuring stick is that they be found faithful. That's what they're responsible for. That they be full of faith, consistent, persevering, not being a quitter, faithful to the word, faithful to the Lord, faithful to the church, faithful to your wife, faithful to the the calling in your life. This is what God's standard is. In John 10, Jesus describes the good shepherd, and he compares the good shepherd to the hireling. And he says, how do you know the difference between the good shepherd and the hireling? The hireling, when problems come, does what? John 10, when the hireling faces problems, he runs and leaves the sheep alone. What is he not? His measuring stick is faithfulness. His measuring stick is faithfulness. Matthew 24, the servant that's in the house and he's serving, he's serving. There's two servants that are there. One of them, the master goes away for a season. One of them decides to start abusing his, his, starts getting drunk and partying and abusing his fellow man. And the Lord says he is not, he's not faithful. Matthew 25, that talks about the guys who get the talents. And one of them turns his talents in from five to ten, and one from two to four, and one hides his talent. And the Lord says that he was not, he was not faithful. You see, the measuring stick of man is accomplishments. The measuring stick of man is talent. The measuring stick of man is beauty and possessions. The measuring stick of man is all of these external things. What God expects from you folks is that you be faithful to him. Not that you be perfect. It doesn't take perfection to wake up in the morning and strive that day to serve the Lord. You know what it takes? It takes faithfulness. It takes faithfulness to do that. Measuring based upon God's standard of measurement, which is if a man is a steward of God, he must be faithful. And if you look at 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, you will find that you can capture all of the instructions and requirements for the elder in the word faithful. That's what it is. So number one, your measuring stick for the leaders in your church is that he belongs to God. He is God's servant. He is God's steward. He is supposed to be faithful. He will give an account to God. That's that's the measuring stick. Number two, Notice this in verse 5 down to verse 13. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his praise from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefits, brethren, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have what you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited as apostles, us as apostles last of all. Like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but but we are in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. 
We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandering, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. When we see these things, we don't see something that we would desire, do we? Let me say this, number two. We need to measure our leadership by the fact that they are the ones who are being fashioned. They are ones who are being fashioned. The emphasis of this context is that the Apostle Paul is saying, I'm not finished, or God's not finished with me yet. In in other words, don't judge before the time. Don't judge before God's work is finished in an individual's life. God is still working in individuals' lives. God is still working in ministers' lives. Ministers haven't somehow arrived at perfection. Amen? You guys know better than that. Ministers haven't arrived at perfection. Amen? We are on a journey. God is still sanctifying us. God is still setting us apart. God is still working on us. And what he's saying to us, as a, saying to the congregation here in Corinth, is don't judge your leaders before they've reached where I'm taking them. Don't judge them before they reach their, their, their fulfilled purpose. And listen to me, folks. We can all learn from this because we all judge each other before the work is finished, don't we? We do it every day. We look at people and we, and we critique them and we, and, we, and we criticize them and we do all of these things before they're, they're done. It's like putting, a, it's like putting a, a cake in the oven and looking in it at five minutes and it's, it's not completely risen and you're like, oh, that's a, that's a horrible cake. Take that out and throw it away. No, it's not. It still has, t- I don't know if five minutes is a long time for a cake, but it's, I may, maybe it is fully risen. I don't know. But the illustration is simply this. It's not done yet. The problem is, is we look at certain people and we think that they should be done. And leaders in the church are often those people that we look at, we say, hey, they should be done. No, they're on the same journey that everybody else is on. They're being sanctified just like everybody else is. They've got flaws just like anybody else does. They fail just like anybody else does. They trip over their shoe. They do things that they shouldn't do. They are in that journey. Listen, what the Apostle Paul says is when you're judging, when you're measuring up your leaders, be careful not to measure them before they're finished. Be careful not to judge them before my work with them is done. He goes on to say a few things, and I want to just give them to you um, just quickly. Don't judge them before the work is complete. Don't judge them before their heart is exposed before God. Because remember this, God is interested in their heart, not just their actions. Don't judge them, he says, beyond what is written. Say, Pastor John, what does that mean? That was a real wrestle for me. What, What does he mean when he says, don't judge them beyond what's written? What he is saying is this. Don't judge a man beyond what is written about mankind. It's a great leveling. It's a great leveling tool to look at the scriptures and to see in Romans 3, we are all sinners. Don't judge beyond that. Don't judge beyond what God has written in his word about mankind. Don't distinct, that's what he says here, you're, don't judge beyond what is written because what you're doing is, is you're elevating some and you're, and you're demeaning others. 
And the Lord is capturing everybody into this one group. You're all sinners. You've all fallen short of the glory of God. You all need Jesus Christ to save you. He is your only hope. But listen, he is everybody's hope. We all have the same problem. We all have the same solution. Don't judge beyond what is written. This is anthropology, the understanding of man. Do not judge any man above what has been written about all men. This is the way in which we are all leveled. It is easy to elevate or devalue when we start to judge based on our own concepts of people and things. Romans 1 through 3, I mentioned already. And then he says, don't judge as if you've earned something. He describes it here. I'm not going to read the text. You, you guys heard me read it a moment ago, and you can read it in your own time. He says, who are you? Yeah, maybe I will read it. He says, um, if I can find it. He says, for who sees anything different in you? He says, who are you? Who, who are you? It's literally, this is, a, this is a very strong statement that the Apostle Paul is making to them, and it, it's going to be followed up with some sarcasm. He's like, who are you that you are special? And then he goes on to say, what do you have that you have not received? What, what do we have that we have not been gifted Do we have anything that's good in our life that hasn't been gifted to us by God? I think that Romans, uh, that James tells us very clearly, every good and every perfect gift comes from, from God. And that's a paraphrase of it, but you get it. Everything in your life comes from God. He has gifted it to you. Stop judging others based upon what you've been gifted. I think what we do is we start looking at our gifting as if we've earned it and we start saying, hey, you know something? If you want what I have, all you have to do is do what I did to get it. Where is the attention in that category and in that world? How great I am. The issue is, is everything good you have in your life has been given to you by God. Even your abilities have been given to you by God. You shouldn't measure people by your standard of what you have accomplished or or, or made, you, should, you shouldn't measure them as if you have done something to get it. It has been a gift. Don't judge based upon the fact that you've, quote unquote, earned something because everything is a gift from God. Don't judge based upon your perceived blessing. And this is where Paul gets somewhat sarcastic about certain things here. He says to them, you have all that you want. Paul is not complimenting them for the fact that they have all that they want. What he's doing is he's drawing a parallel. He's drawing a distinction. He's drawing a line that says, here's how you think about yourself. And because I haven't reached that, Apostle Paul is saying this, because I haven't reached that, because I haven't reached the status that you think I should reach, you're, you're rejecting me. He says this, I, he says, you have all that you want. You're rich, you're reigning, you're, world, you're wise, you're strong, you're honored. He gives them all of these things that, quote, unquote, they are. It's like heaven to them. It's like they're already living in the millennial kingdom, and they're already reigning on the earth. I can think of another church like that in the church of Laodicea in Revelation 3. He says, you think that you are rich. You say that you are rich, you are increased with goods, and you have need of nothing. 
but you do not know that you are wretched, blind, poor, and destitute. That's what Corinth was. They thought very highly of themselves. Listen to what Paul says about himself. We are last of all. We are condemned. We are spectacles. We are fools. We are weak. We are disrepute, hungry, thirsty, poorly dressed, buffeted, homeless, scum of the earth, refuse of all things. It's as if the Apostle Paul compares his world to being a hell on earth and compares their world as to being a heaven on earth. And the reality of it is, is that's exactly what they were, that's exactly what their mindset was. Why aren't you living like us? We want to find a minister that fits that, that mold the best that he possibly can. The first group is wise because of their personalities and their possessions. The second group is wise because of their spiritual gifts. You'll notice at the end of the portion that I read in verses down, verse 13 and so on, the Apostle Paul then describes the spiritual gifts that he, when reviled, we bless, when persecuted, we endure, when slandered, we entreat. He describes the spiritual gifts that they are now communicating. You know, those things, if you look at the spiritual gifts in Galatians 5, they're not necessary to be fought for if your life is what the Corinthian church viewed their life to be. You don't have to fight to be loving, to be joyful, to be, you don't have to depend on the spirit for those things because you have those things in your own flesh. But when the spirit has to be communicated is when, you're, when you know that you are desperate and you are hungry and you're thirsty and you haven't eaten for a while, spiritually or physically, that's when you start having to depend upon the Holy Spirit of God in you. We must see these as being, these men are being molded as well. They're being fashioned. The last thought is found in the last part of this is ones who are a beloved father. He says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but rather to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you to Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. As I teach them everywhere in every church, some are arrogant and as though I would not come to them, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills and I will find out not the talk of the arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk. And we can learn a lot from that statement, can't we? The kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or, shall, or with love in the spirit of gentleness? The last thing this morning is simply this, that we should view the leaders in our church as the ones who are beloved fathers. They are mentors. He uses the word here, mentor. He says to mimic, to to follow in in my footsteps. And he doesn't just use that here. He uses it in other passages of Scripture as well. It means the Apostle Paul saw himself as a father, a father figure to the people that he was ministering to and that he expected them to follow in his footsteps. Um, like a, like a, a, a rabbi would have done in the, in the gospel times where the, the rabbi would, would, uh, would, would walk in a certain path and those who were under his leadership would literally, would literally make it a point to, to find their feet into his footprints. 
because they wanted to follow him that closely. The, the idea of, of a rabbi and one following him was the one that was following him, the, the term that's used, and I can't think of what it is right now, but it, it carried with it the idea of, of that the sand off of his sandals would, would just brush up onto their sandals. That the, the sand literally would hit them from the, the walking of the, of the rabbi in front of them. The idea of it is, is he is our, the Apostle Paul is our mentor. He is our leader. He is someone that we're supposed to follow. We're supposed to, to um, see as someone to mimic, to, to uh, um, see their faith and follow it. He says in Hebrews 13, 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you in the word of God. Consider the, their way of life and their, out, and their faith and imitate it. Consider their faith and imitate it. And to, 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 they are, the leaders, the leaders of your church are your mentors. You're to mimic them. I wrote this down and I think it's pretty, it's, it's, I think it's accurate to the, to the text here. It's simply this, there's a problem in the church when the life of those who are in the church doesn't match up with the life of the mentor in the church. And you look, we see that in the Apostle Paul's life. The people in Corinth were living at a whole different level than the Apostle Paul was. And they, they obviously weren't following in his footsteps. They had become very selfish and self-centered and self-focused. And what does he tell them to do? Here's Paul. He's just said to them, I'm, I'm rejected, I'm hated, I'm, you know, all these horrible things. And then what does he tell them to do? I want you to follow me. I want you to follow me. Follow in my footsteps. Why? Because the things that they saw about themselves, listen, what would we pursue in our world today? Would we not pursue all of the things that, the, that these people described? You, you have all that you want, you're rich, you're reigning, you're wise, you're strong, you're honored. Would we not, isn't that our pursuits? And then the apostle says, for us apostles, we are last, we are condemned, we are spectacles, we are fools, we are weak, we are disreputable, we are hungry, thirsty, poorly dressed, homeless, buffeted. These are not the things that we would, we would want for ourselves. And the apostle Paul goes on to say, mimic me. Mimic me. Because all of those things is what led to the division in the church. And what the Apostle Paul is pressing the church to is humility. He's pressing them to be humble about self. And to be humble about their leadership. Leaders in the church are those are need to be viewed as beloved fathers. They are mentors. They are admonishing us and not shaming us. They, they ought to be admonishing us and not shaming us. That's what he says here in the text. I do not write these things to make you ashamed. I'm not trying to shame you into doing something. I'm admonishing you because it's the right thing to do. I think many, in many cultures today, and in, in, even in our homes today, the world is telling the kids that your parents are trying to shame you into doing something that you, that you don't want to do. The issue is, is the parents love their kids, hopefully love their kids enough to tell them what's the best thing to do. They're not shaming them, but they're admonishing them, warning them, encouraging them, cautioning them, reproving them. That's what the word admonish means. They're admonishing, not shaming and you need to see it that way. If you see your leaders in your church as shaming you, and listen, if, they're, if they are shaming you, then shame on them, right? But the issue is, if, if, if you see that, it's just going to cause division. And that's why the apostle says, I'm not shaming. I'm, I'm trying to encourage the right path. They are, not, they are admonishing not shaming. They are fatherly. 
lovingly trying to instruct. He says that they are reminding us of the Lord's way or reminding us of his way. Timothy was reminding them. Leaders in the church remind us of our, they remind us of our flaws. They're there to help correct us. When we realize where we are and where we need to be, sometimes having somebody instructing us is helpful. True? The only time somebody doesn't want to be instructed is when they believe they've arrived. And that's a problem. They're going to determine whether or not our ministry is talk, all talk, or power. They're going to be able to distinguish that and help us. That's what the leadership is there to do. It's there to help. Not discourage, not shame, not guilt into doing things, but to to help encourage along the way. And then lastly, they're authoritative. Apostle Paul says at the end, the very end of this chapter, he says, do you want me to come with with a rod? And he's asking them a very simple question. He's saying, do you want me to come authoritatively or do you want me to come gently? And let me say this to you. I believe the Apostle Paul's heart was, I want to go and be gentle. And we see that in other texts of Scripture where the, where the Apostle Paul actually, actually um, he, uh, he waits to go to a, to a certain location until he can go there with gentility. He's patient because he wants to be gentle with the church. He, he wants to be compassionate with them. But I want you to know, he wants, us to, he wants them to know that he has the authority to to command as a minister of the word of God, as a minister of the mysteries of God, to command obedience. And it should never be the pastor's heart to do that, but it should also be understood by the congregation that there is that authority. And we'll see in the next chapter where the Apostle Paul then calls the church to kick a man out because he's living in sin. So there is authority there. And uh, it's a healthy authority and a biblical authority. In closing... Church unity is often bound up in a congregation's view of their leaders. People need to attend a church where they trust the leadership and can respect and submit to it, resulting in support and participation in the ministry's direction. And I just say this to you guys. It's, it, it's not healthy. People say, well, I'm just going to stick it out. I'm just going to stay. I can't stand the leaders. I can't stand the direction. I'm just going to stay. And, the, and then they disgruntleize the whole church. It's not healthy. It's not good for the church. It's not good for the people. It's not good for anybody. My encouragement to, to you, if you're in that boat, and I pray that you're not, but if you are, I pray that you would find a church that you can support and, and, and commit yourself to the leadership and trust them. Because you're not going to do anybody any favors by being disgruntled. It's destructive to the whole church. It's destructive to the whole church. And all of us have to evaluate that. We need to be supportive of each other. We're all failures. We're all faulty, right? We all make mistakes. No one is perfect here. But God has set up an an organism and he's set up structure so that that organism can function in a way that is reflective of him. A unified way. And so it's important that you find a place so that you can grow and that you can be a part and you can be supportive and you can be active and involved in. And I pray for some of you that are visiting today, you're, you're, you're maybe looking for that place. And I, I pray that this would be the place that you would find where you could, you could honor and respect the leadership and find yourself in and part of the vision. But that's something that you have to decide. That's something that God has to work in your heart. 
Thriving churches, if you, if you study and look at them historically and even in our culture today, thriving churches seem to be supportive, helpful. They seem to trust their leaders. They are satisfying. They are satisfied, forgiving, and gracious because of what Christ has done for them. An unsupportive and untrusting congregation can often hinder a church. When a church gets, um, but however, when a church gets behind its leadership, there is nothing that that church cannot accomplish. I think the scriptures encourage us to be in a church where we can trust the leadership, fully participate and commit to the church, get involved with our spiritual gifts, and serve fully and faithfully. And I just want to close with this, and I said this at the beginning of the message as well. These instructions are not just for the congregation. I think that there is, there is a, a robust attention by the Apostle Paul on the congregation because in this context, there is the leaders are not the problem. The congregation is, is being a problem. But I want you to say this, that we all, we all uh, recognize that leaders can be a problem too. So I say this as I go through this this week and study this and work this whole thing out. I said to the Lord, Lord, help me to be fatherly. Lord, help me to be a work in process. Help me to be all of the things that you want the people to see me as. Help me to be them. Because it's a challenge on me. It's a challenge on Pastor Michael. It's a challenge on all of us. We're not just saying the congregation needs to view us in a certain way no matter what. We're saying that we need to be those people that the congregation can view in that way. But in the end, listen to me, unity, unity, only comes when we, view, when we view each other from God's perspective. And that's what we want. We want to be unified under the grace of our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the instruction that you give us here and the, the challenge to, to not be selfish and not be self-centered and, and to put ourselves aside so that the, the whole of the church could be unified and that Christ could be exalted and that his name could be praised and his glory could be seen. Please forgive us, Lord, for where we fall short in these ways. Please forgive us as leaders when we're not fatherly, when we don't see ourselves as a work in progress, when we maybe present ourselves as knowing everything when we don't or even having arrived when we haven't. Help us to be humble and to lead in such a way as to be trusting or trustable, trustworthy. I pray that you would be with our congregation here, that you would grow us in this area of being gracious and, and humble towards the leadership as well, that we could create and see a unity that for years to come would cause this church to thrive in this community, that people would be able to look at Grace Bible Church and say, there's something different about them. There's something unique. There's something powerful there that I don't understand. And may we shine brightly in this community. We love you, Lord. And we do it because of our love for you. And we love you because you loved us first. Please go with us home today in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen.